This is Mike Levitt. Our nation is faced with two very important, but sometimes competing priorities. We have a duty to provide the best possible health care for every patient, but we must also remain competitive in a global marketplace. That's what value-based care is all about. Our challenge is to create a uniquely American system of health care. Truly, we're in a race to make value work. Welcome to The Race to Value, a weekly podcast hosted by Dr. Eric Weaver of the Institute for Advancing Health Value. The Institute is a nonprofit organization focused on accelerating the industry to succeed in health value. Join Eric as they engage the executives, clinicians, and entrepreneurs who are leading this race to value. Race to Value listeners, this week we have an exceptional episode for you. We are joined by Mike Kopko, the CEO of Pearl Health, a company that's on a mission to democratize access to value in healthcare. More than 800 primary care providers across the country have partnered with Pearl to align payments with patient health and, and leverage emerging data and technology to achieve better outcomes more efficiently. And earlier this year, Pearl closed on a $75 million Series B funding round to bring even more capability to the health value economy by empowering providers to transition to a more proactive care model and enable them with the technology that surfaces urgent cases before they become emergent and rewarding them for outcomes that are aligned with value. And you know, this is a company that you absolutely need to know more about. Mike Kopko is someone that you need to hear. We've done close to 200 episodes of the Race to Value. I mean, this has to be, you know, one of my favorite ones so far. I mean, Mike is just embodies passion and, and you know, he's someone that, that really provides key learnings, even for us industry experts that are trying to navigate the storm here in value-based care. I mean, it was such a pleasure to have Mike on the podcast and discuss all the challenges of our industry and, and what his company is doing to accelerate the development of innovative solutions that place providers at the center of healthcare delivery and cost management. So let's go ahead and hear from Michael Kopko, CEO of Pearl Health, as he joins us this week in the Race to Value. Mike, welcome to the Race to Value podcast. You know, we've been wanting to have you on the show for so long. Can't wait to dive into all things value-based care and learn more about the great work that you and your team are doing at Pearl Health. So uh, welcome to the show. Thanks, Eric. It's great to be here. We're excited to be chatting with you and your organization, and frankly, more importantly, what's happening in value across the healthcare ecosystem in our country. So looking forward to jumping into it. Well, Mike, let's definitely jump into it and let's let's start there, you know, with the state of the value movement in our country. You know, I really wanted to talk to you about that, especially as it pertains to your leadership vision to democratize access to value in healthcare so we could finally reach a critical mass and transformation. After more than a decade of value-based care efforts at a national level, it's still pretty daunting when you when you see how the U.S. pays about twice as much for healthcare than any other country. We're underperforming in quality and outcomes. 
And then in the traditional Medicare program, ACOs have been heralded as a model for VBC enablement, but they haven't quite delivered on the level of cost savings or improved health outcomes to save the Medicare trust fund from insolvency, nor bring the level of scale necessary to transform the entire industry towards patient-centered care. And there's so many headwinds and value transformation. I mean, this is a seismic shift of 20% of our economy. It's fraught with landmines related to entrenched interests and self-perpetuating fee-for-service economics. And alternative payment models up until recently have been mostly oriented towards marginal quality-based upside on fee-for-service approaches without the appropriate incentives to truly catalyze care delivery transformation. And these models have kept one foot in the fee-for-service door while trying to move more providers away from volume-oriented revenue structures. And, you know, we have now ACO Reach, which involves a prospective payment structure. And that's certainly a promising bellwether for change. And, you know, that coupled with the explosive growth of Medicare Advantage provides a power curve of economic profit opportunity for sustainable transformation. And I, I wanted to talk to you a little bit later on ACO Reach in the interview, but first I wanted to get your holistic perspective on the broader movement to value-based care. Can you provide your perspective on the, the pacing and sustainability of value transformation in the U.S. and how will Pearl Health help democratize access to value in healthcare as we reach this inflection point of 2030 when CMS is aiming to have all Medicare beneficiaries in an accountable care relationship? Well, let me first start with, I'm, a, I'm an admitted optimist. So while I do think there are some things to be concerned about, I'm looking forward to talking with you about them today. I do think it will continue to get better for us and for healthcare over time. And that, that's not to say it's not too expensive and that we don't have problems, but I think there are a lot of good things going on. I'd like to highlight just a few and then cover a couple of the concerns that you raised. First, you know, we are seeing uh, an incredible amount of R&D development and productivity from our healthcare sector, from life-saving drugs to emergency care. We're still somewhat the bellwether and destination for the world to get uh, immediate and life-saving care. And that's not to say we're the, the best and don't have our problems, but I think our system itself is truly advanced. I think the, you know, and since 1990, Michael Porter kind of coined the term, but the steady march toward value, I think is a good sign. It takes a long time to change systems that are as big as you say, right? 20% of GDP, you think of it almost as changing uh, the military culture. You know, these are big changes that don't happen overnight, but I think you're watching it happen slowly but surely uh, in the accountable care category and, and the value-based construct. If you look at Medicare, I mean, you could argue now we got about 60 million people in Medicare and growing, but almost two thirds of them are in some kind of a value-based framework. I, I consider Medicare Advantage to be value-based. We can get into the details of that, but it really is not anymore a fee-for-service game, maybe with the exception of the coding incentives that are now kind of starting to shift. And then traditional Medicare, to your point, with our policies around reach and MSSP and CMI's prerogative to move it all and by 2030, that's now more than half in an accountable care relationship. And, and I'm kind of just coming out of our third growth season. It has been busier than ever. So I think the underlying infrastructure, the operating system, of healthcare is positioned well for value. Now we're going to, have to do some hard things. You know, you saw Medicare is going to negotiate drug costs. It's not going to come without friction. But now that everyone's on this kind of newer operating system, I think we're going to be able to get a lot more bang for the buck if we have the will to do it. Um, Americans always have the capabilities and the intelligence. The question will be on the incentive side and the policy side. Do we want to push hard or how hard? 
And when I think more broadly about our category across ACOs, I think there's this huge focus on savings. And that's really important. And it's something to watch. There's a new article out in New York Times showing how Medicare cost growth has abated. I think it's a, a temporary to medium good term news, but I think we still have some problems to work through to your points of how much savings the ACO model has generated. But I do want to suggest another thought that there's the savings and, and there's no excuse to not delivering that. And I think we will see that as physicians move more and more into these models. But we're also bringing online a tremendous amount of data on patients. And the fee-for-service world just didn't really allow for that. And what I'm most excited about, and we at Pearl are as well, the ability to be proactive, to anticipate what's going to happen with somebody and to get life-saving or critical care to them in an anticipatory, increasingly automated fashion is really going to transform how we think about healthcare. Now, it may take 2030 and beyond, but a system that I think, especially on the fee-for-service infrastructure, that is very reactive and dated is at least starting to get the highway and freeways and the data interoperability to be very proactive. And that's what we're excited about. That's what we're building for. And I think a lot of companies and a lot of people see that. So, you know, those are some of my initial thoughts. Happy to dive in where you'd like. But I think it's a, an expensive story, but it's not necessarily going to end with bad news. I think it's going to get better. And, you know, the good news about the American healthcare system, we do not have a money problem. And, and that may not that may not strike your audience as uh, the first thing you'd say. But what I would argue is we have so much money that with our capability set and the right incentives, we will solve any problem as long as we have the will and we put in the right systems to do so. Well, Mike, I appreciate that optimism and share in that. And it's it's reaffirming to to hear your perspective. It's well-informed and certainly uh, it provides me and our listeners with the appropriate level of guidance to understand, you know, what's in store for us in this transformation of value. And you've been on quite the value journey yourself, and I'd love to learn more about the, the company and its founding vision. And as a co-founder and current CEO of Pearl Health, you launched the company in November 2020, developing a technology platform that helps these independent physician practices participate in value-based care models. And Pearl has seen a 10x year-over-year -year growth, expanding from 10 to 29 states. And you've attributed that to the industry's increasing recognition of how enablement technology is the missing piece in helping providers perform successfully in value-based arrangements. And this new area of healthcare will certainly be defined by that trend of physician enablement and undeniably, technology will play a large role in that, empowering doctors to deliver more personalized, efficient, and compassionate care, ultimately transforming the patient experience and that idealized future of medicine. However, you know, there's the optimism, but there's also the pragmatism and all that. And, you know, being pragmatic, you know, we, we have to be reminded uh, to be reserved about the role of technology and healthcare transformation for while it holds great promise, it's not always the all-encompassing holy grail that's it's often portrayed to be. I mean, the true magic lies in the thoughtful and responsible integration of technology guided by the wisdom of experienced professionals to ensure that it enhances rather than hinders the sacred doctor-patient relationship and the delivery of quality care. And what I love about Pearl is that it embodies that credo of harmonizing the technology with the people. And your company is led by provider enablement, risk-bearing, and technology experts that are working closely with these primary care organizations in their transition to value-based care. And in founding the company, I'd love to better understand your recognition of the opportunity 
to help providers reimagine, you know, how they visualize, understand, and care for patients. I mean, could you discuss the impetus for starting the company and how it's evolved over the last few years? And as CEO, how do you hardwire your founding vision into the day-to-day supporting your clients with both the technology to surface the data and insights, along with the level of expertise that's needed to effectively leverage that technology? Yeah, happy to. And sometimes these stories begin with uh, naivete. I had the great pleasure to work at Oscar Health uh, for many years. I started there, frankly, before uh, they had any customers or revenue and had a chance to go all the way up through and help uh, be a part of the team that led their IPO. And in between those two points, led their sales organization and their network organization, as well as uh, running their largest PL. And I think that the most striking moment for me, I was given this assignment by the CFO at the time, a man named Brian West, who's now the CFO of Boeing. Uh, and I'd worked for him and he had said, you know, we have a real cost problem here. Need you to go and fix our network. We're running very high on medical expenses. And I had kind of built this initial plan that I was going to align all of our providers with our outcomes. And I kind of presented that to the team. And it was really, you know, in a, in a respectful way told that's wrong. You're going to have to go and do a lot of hospital deals. And, you know, my first instinct at a logical level was, you know, patients love their physicians and the physicians have a huge trust and they can help navigate patients through a very expensive system better than anybody. But because of my lack of background experience at the time, I didn't appreciate that really it was hospitals who owned physicians who really dictated how healthcare was gonna be consumed uh, from a cost perspective. And so we spent a bunch of time, three years, just really partnering with hospitals across the country, did about a hundred hospital uh, deals during that time with our team. And as I watched this and asked folks about primary care, because I knew it made patients happier, I'd ask, well, how many more primary care doctors can we add? What do you pay them? I was pretty much dismissed on those questions. But, you know, I always had in the back of my mind, you know, this, I think, is one of the key pieces that improves the equation. It makes patients happier. It's more longitudinal in nature. And so I had this opportunity uh, around 2019, 2020 to uh, be approached by a group called Alicorp, and they had been working on an idea in this direct contracting space. And the real opportunity, as I saw it, was bringing primary care to a more holistic more aligned relationship with patients and giving them the opportunity to kind of get to the first dollar economics that insurance entities and even hospitals had had that opportunity prior. So to me, it seemed like a no brainer, but there was this big missing piece. And the missing piece was not only at a policy level, you know, how could you do this? Because healthcare, if you don't understand the policy infrastructure, becomes very hard to be an entrepreneur within. The second piece was actually the ability, the talent and the data, the information for a primary care physician to manage total cost of care. And without that, I'd argue it's really just gambling. Um, and that had historically what, you know, the concept of value for independent physicians had felt like. You'd sign on to something, you didn't get a lot of information, and you'd be told if you did well or not. And so it was kind of tantamount to gambling with your own income. But I think what happened with direct contracting, now reach MSSP, is for the right physicians plugged into the right enablement partners, it's no longer that. And that's not to say it's gonna be easy, but now you have a chance to really understand what's happening with patients and you're able to bring that to the foreground and you're able to activate and manage your patients with a tremendous amount of information. I'd even argue more than what your hospital system or CMS gets unless they're, they're in one of these models because you have this holistic view. And so that vision around 2019, 2020, to me seemed like a no regret move. Now, I'll mind you that around that time, primary care and I was reading this in terms of their own love of the industry, was probably at an all-time low. People were leaving the category, were telling 
their children, their friends, they wouldn't have become primary care. What I would argue over the last three years, we've seen already a beginning of a renaissance. And so we're excited to see that renaissance for primary care providers. And we're more excited to see the increase in intelligence that's being offered to that category. And frankly, any physician who's willing to move into accountable care, I think that intelligence is going to compound to radical, uh, radically improved levels where you'll be able to know what's happening with patients well before it happens. And you know, I can give you examples of what we're building at Pearl that highlights that, you know, predicting uh, diagnostic codes that will likely um, face a patient in the coming six to 12 months, anticipating uh, ER admissions and giving physicians the power to reach out before those ER admissions occur, um, predicting missed medication moments so we can avoid what are the typically negative impacts when someone stops taking a medication. Um, so all of these things I think are now starting to become not only available, but I, you know, I, I think in the next five, 10 years, it won't even be considered competitive if that's where you're starting with. That'll be considered almost a commodity capability. So that's what we've been really excited about building at Pearl. And I, and I think, frankly, we're just beginning in this category. Well, Mike, I'd love to better understand the level of intelligence that you're providing to primary care physicians. I mean, the Pearl platform, as I understand, it's purpose-built to help these primary care providers manage their patients proactively in value-based programs, and you aggregate data sources from across the entire healthcare system to power an urgency score, which prioritizes patients in need of outreach, and you then explain what signals you're receiving that validate the need for engagement and what specific intervention or actions those signals indicate that may be appropriate, and this level of detail and patient level information encompasses the entire care continuum. And, you know, to your point, it provides that holistic longitudinal visibility and the alerts provided by the Pearl platform enable those timely clinical interventions and help manage transitions in care and avoid readmissions. And in thinking about the technology, I mean, it's well understood that the true art of sophistication lies not only in complexity, but in seamless simplicity you know, where the innovation harmonizes with the user experience and creates that symphony of elegant solutions. And that level of simplicity couldn't be more applicable to this overburdened primary care population, you know, that we're seeing. I mean, you mentioned earlier, you know, how, you know, they're, they've been at a low point for so long, they're beleaguered, they're burned out from all the administrative of running a, a practice, especially in the fee-for-service world. And, you know, there was a study that came out years ago that said, you know, the average primary care physician, you know, would have to have 21.7 hours of work in their day to accomplish absolutely everything that's expected of them in terms of patient care and maintaining a, a business. And, you know, this value movement that we're in, it's so dependent on independent primary care physicians who can focus on those patient relationships and provide more holistic relationship-based care that supports the improvement of care quality, um, drives forward innovation, you know, spans the brick and mortar of the clinic, you know, reaches out into the community, goes upstream. And, you know, it's a very challenging profession as it is. And we're asking these doctors to be enabled and really will learn and rethink how they even practice medicine. And that technology enablement is just desperately needed to help them you know, with the needed efficiencies and also uh, help them effectively navigate these demands of value-based care. So, Mike, I wanted to ask you if you could provide our listeners with a general overview of how the Pearl Health platform supports value-based care and how do you balance innovation 
with practical usability to create this user-friendly solution for these primary care providers? Yeah, so let me answer that question pretty simply up front. You mentioned this kind of healthcare model. So the two worlds we're really comparing here, the fee-for-service world, you're really prepping around a visit and you're really trying to make those visits as efficient as possible. It's somewhat tantamount to an assembly line. How many of those units can you produce per day? That's the 21.7. You have, uh, it's encumbered by a lot of administrative requirements and that's the revenue model of the practice. The new world is value, which is what is the appropriate intervention to manage a patient holistically, and how does the primary care practice facilitate those moments as efficiently as possible? And the economics or the revenue model are captured by managing that patient more efficiently. There's typically two to 3% of the total cost of care, sometimes more, allocated to the primary care practice. And then there is anything that can be reduced from a savings front. And a lot of that is captured by our primary care clients. So the innovation that Pearl adds to this equation, we think about it as how do we, on behalf of our practices, make it as administratively simple and cost and time effective to make this business model switch. So the way we do that, we enable all of our practice to plug into value-based models by signature. So a world where you'd have to apply and build out a compliance regime and uh, purchase and integrate data streams has now literally moved to agreeing to a DocuSign and configuring a bank account so that you can get paid. And then we present basically a UI or user interface website. We can integrate with your EHR that starts making suggestions on which patients in rank order need to be addressed because they're likely to drive expenses. And from a population health standpoint, most likely to go out of control, meaning something bad is gonna happen to them. A condition's gonna get worse, a new condition's gonna emerge, God forbid a life-threatening situation is about to occur. So we are priming and building an algorithm and learning and getting deep on how to predict those moments more quickly and accurately. And then the future is to automate more of those actions so it's not contact work and visit work for the practice, but technology really enabling all of these patient reach outs through email, text messaging, transportation support, sending things to the home, et cetera. And, you know, we mentioned this in, and Eric, you mentioned it a little bit earlier in our discussion. You know, technology's march into healthcare is a little bit slower. You, you know, you could argue that's a good thing, right? You know, social media, uh, some of the things we see out there uh, that are very tech forward sometimes have some very big missteps. They embrace new technologies. Think about crypto, which has a lot of great promise, but has also had some recent pain points. And what I think healthcare does is it actually watches and sees what technology should be absorbed into our infrastructure and ecosystem versus kind of falling off those cliffs, being too forward sometimes. And so what we think of at, at Pearl is if we can start building all of this alignment and these data feeds, the future of automation, AI, um, is really just beginning. And you can see this in terms of the policy pieces being released, that there's a lot of openness to how do we take out all that administrative burden on physicians that you mentioned, the 21.7 hours, because it really isn't healthcare and it's frankly not even productive work. So that's the part where I'm very optimistic about it. You get these systems in place where you're addressing the right patients, you're empowering physicians with intelligence and data. A lot of the admin is going to start melting away. Take MIPS, for example, which comes out of the MSSP framework. You know, it's very clear that that program doesn't really add to population health. There's a recent uh, JAMA article that studied about 80,000 primary care practices and really found it was uncorrelated with better population health outcomes. And so REACH recognizes that. 
breach dropped that as a requirement and it therefore is saving hours and hours of administrative time for practices. And I think that's just an example of what's to come. And there'll be more of it, especially as um, you know, newer generations come into the policy leadership world and see that technology, frankly, can be a friend as long as it doesn't step off the cliff. And I think I think that's the recognition that we're seeing. And value-based care and primary care are going to benefit tremendously from that. Well, Mike, I wanted to ask you more about the psychology of the primary care physician in this current state of healthcare. I mean, we talked about earlier about how primary care has been a, at a low point for so long. They've been underappreciated. I mean, they're in fee-for-service. There's a, a clear cultural hierarchy in medicine, and PCPs are at the bottom of the caste system, and the fee-for-service system like favors all this procedural intensity over cognitive care, and uh, invariably population health suffers, and the mental health of primary care physicians suffers too. I mean, they're relegated to almost a second-class citizenship in the medical community, and these primary care physicians are feeling frustrated, marginalized, and you know, in fee for service, you know, we have this medical industrial complex and it just makes it so hard on these PCPs. I mean, they're on this hamster wheel. They're trying to keep up with the demands of running a practice. They're seeing upwards of 30 patients a day. They're trying to keep the lights on. You know, the systems turn them into these glorified data entry clerks and they're having to deal with all the red tape from insurers, uh, you know, and these pre-authorization requirements and all these other administrative hassles and you know, it's been projected that burnout is affecting well over half of the PCPs in practice. And, you know, many that are in practice are saying that, you know, they're experiencing this moral injury because the burnout, you know, calling it burnout is just insulting to them. And it's insufficient in describing the pain of practicing in a broken system. And, you know, we've even gone as far as, you know, taking the, you know, Don Berwick's uh, uh, triple aim from the IHI you know, which is, you know, lowering cost, improving the patient experience, improving clinical and quality outcomes. And we've added a quadruple aim to that, which is really addressing and ameliorating the suffering of physicians. And I wanted to better understand in your work in primary care physician and primary care transformation, you know, what are you seeing in terms of you know how uh, these PCPs are feeling about, you know, uh the the current system and uh, in its evolution of value-based care? I mean, what are some of the key challenges that they're facing in this big transition? And does this uh, movement to value really give them the opportunity to practice medicine and the way that they originally intended when they went to medical school in terms of tapping into that altruism and, and really you know, providing the outcomes that they want for their patients? So I, I think it depends a lot on who you talk to. I would certainly acknowledge that the field can feel administrative, burdensome, and frankly, unrelated to the ambitions that most physicians began their careers with. However, I think there's going to be a small set, hopefully a big set of primary care providers who are going to realize they're actually at a very crucible moment to become elite practitioners in our healthcare system. And I'm not sure it will gather all of them because there is a, there's a little bit of a jadedness. And I, and I acknowledge that, especially people who are experienced in this game, but more importantly, you really have to see this moment coming and you have to seize it. But I think that moment is combining tools and capabilities at the primary care level. And this is kind of, how do you get above the visit? How do you become a practice that can produce value, can produce contribution above just a fee for service visit model? The data intelligence we've been talking a little bit about, you've got to be able to get access to 
patient data. So you move away from, let me give you what you came to ask me for today to let me manage a population, let me lead a community to health. And I think there has to be a renewal of whether it's entrepreneurship or risk-taking, a willingness to change your business model. So I think those three things are critical requirements to seize this moment for primary care. But I will, I will tell you, I don't even think this is a prediction. There are going to be, Eric, something like 5 10%, maybe more of primary care providers who are going to look like it was better to go into primary care than any other field for a variety of reasons. Let's take the economics, we'll put that aside, but I would argue certainly that'll be there. The ability to influence a community's health and the ability to position yourself at the kind of center or the quarterback, as it's often referred to in value, that is going to become available to primary care practitioners across the country if they have the will and the ability to move into these models. I think value offers that clearly, and we're seeing it today. I've watched compensation models, reimbursements completely change for providers who are willing to consider value, and I think it's a big moment. And then you know, the other piece that I see from my side more of how we stood up and built Pearl, the progress in this category, I would argue, is a function, and, and, and there's a man in an economist that's called the solo growth model, but it really comes from the application of technology, labor, and capital. And what I would, I would say right now in, in the world of value, the technology is getting there. We got a little bit of work to do on interoperability. We've got a little bit of training and algorithmic work to build up on so we can really predict and respond to patients quickly, but it's, it's on the fast march. The labor has to make a transition, right? To move away from this fee for service model. And the capital is there, you know, at a time where everyone's talking about the challenges and venture, the enablement and value category is not having that same pain. It'll obviously go through its own reckoning, but this is a time where I think everyone really believes that something is different and change is coming. And so I would ask folks to be much more open to what the value world offers. And, and I'll say, you know, having come out of um, our third growth season, it's clear to me that asking for it's not even a requirement right now. Everybody that we spoke to is considering this and has multiple partners and multiple pathways to doing it. So the game, the game is changing whether you agree with it or not, people are considering and adopting value-based models more rapidly than I've ever seen in a decade of um, you know, working with and building networks in healthcare. Well, amen, brother. I mean, that really resonates with me. I mean, this is such a tremendous opportunity for these primary care physicians. And, you know, as you said, the velocity of capital that's pouring into the enablement side of things. I mean, it really gives us uh, hope that, you know, we're going to be able to, you know, rectify the the dysfunction of our system. And, you know, and just thinking about more about these primary care physicians, I mean, it, there's it, there's certainly uh, an inflection point that, you know, seemingly is underway. I I mean, they, you know, we talked about how they've been, you know, undervalued, uh, you know, but they're responsible for about 10 million in these downstream healthcare costs. I mean, they're clearly positioned as the de facto aggregators of risk and value-based care models. And there, there's this opportunity to rejuvenate the profession and, you know, medicine as a whole. And, you know, despite that power, like primary care to be able to go upstream and prevent all this unnecessary spend through prevention and more uh, effective chronic care management and SDOH interventions. We also have to think about the role that specialists play as well. I mean, they're, you know, there's such a big role for specialists to play in VBC and, you know, these primary care physicians that are taking fully capitated risk, they have to get these specialists contracted in value-based arrangements. And, you know, that requires massive network development teams that often encounter, you know, friction with these 
increasingly oligopolistic market dynamics that are implied by these integrated health systems. And these dynamics lead to a slower expansion of value-based initiatives and an imbalance in the negotiation leverage of these PCPs. And from what I understand, Pearl is uh, sees an opportunity to you know, obviate some of these problems that are in these local markets and uh, move towards more of these aligned virtual care teams that are supported by these targeted local assets. And your company is helping identify specialty risk partners that have demonstrated, you know, high quality, efficient outcomes, you know, via these appropriate care models for the relevant populations. So, Mike, I wanted to ask you if you could describe, you know, this unique dynamic between PCPs and specialty providers and how value-based care can bring more alignment and cohesion to the provider landscape. And, and how does Pearl support PCPs and developing a specialty risk marketplace in order to structure effective co-management opportunities and full reach programs like REACH or, or delegated Medicare Advantage? Well, so you got, you know, it's funny, you began our, our, our discussion, how expensive our system is. And there's, there's a great article in the New Yorker about the Costa Rica system that has shown you can get a lot out of really a primary care team aligned with some support looking over and supporting large populations. And you know, one of the joys of working at Pearl and the, and the seat that I get to be in our team is we get to kind of think and see and build for a world that can be as opposed to one that is. And I would argue if you, if you really look at how healthcare is delivered, the regression equation would suggest that if a patient is well-managed by their physicians, primary care plus a couple set of critical specialists would probably explain 60 to 80% of medical costs. Then it doesn't include terrible accidents and unforeseen events. But when you really study expenses and their genesis, if you have an aligned team of physicians to manage them, you can really get great outcomes with great efficiency. And so when I look at where we are with reach and the kind of current value-based world, I'm actually worried we're going to miss the opportunity. To me, it is so ripe and moving so quickly that as we kind of wake up every day, we're trying to navigate to make sure we help uh, not only lead, but get to participate in this transition. So you mentioned specialists, you know, their business model has been a little bit more state. They earn higher rents for doing fee for service models still today relative to primary care, but that's changing. Um, with the advanced quality programs and measurement, you know, the game of doing surgeries where they may not be necessary or providing fee-for-service where it may be more margin-linked than it is uh, critical, I think that is coming to an end over a medium to long-term period. That doesn't mean that it, there won't be room to uh, participate in it. And frankly, it's hard to convert specialists to value. But what we see is increasingly teams of providers and specialists outright looking to be included in these arrangements because they see the thing that we see, which is if you can get the right alignment and incentive model and the right team that is supported and equipped, the dollars that are available and the data that is available to that group is categorically different than them operating in their siloed fee-for-service world. That switch of a team of aligned primary care and specialists can capture more value, but deliver more population health, even more importantly, because most of these folks, I think, are really motivated by delivering better care, and they want to be compensated fairly. And so that kind of fulcrum that we're at now has finally tipped because, and, and someone asked me recently, like, why is it different? We've been talking about value for three decades. 
I think because of interoperability and technology and the cost of getting technology and data to physicians is dramatically cheaper now than it's ever been. I mean, the Pearl platform and the number of lives and premium dollars that we're managing, even relative to my time at Oscar, it's 120th the cost. You know, for the same amount of premiums that we're managing, Pearl is spending $1 where, you know, an Oscar or even an insurer would spend 20 to manage. And so we're really kind of starting to create a technology and a democratization of access to value that I think is very different than it's ever been. And, and you'll see that there are more competitors. We're not the only one offering this, but as we keep repeating on it, there will be a set of uh, winners. And I think products that stand out from the crowd and really enable physicians to flip models more seamlessly. And I think that is gonna be the first great sign that we've gotten, we've broken through to new territory is that the choice between these models will feel easy, logical, simple for physicians. And then the real test is, do we get better population health at a lower cost moving to these value-based models? And it's gonna be led by primary care and specialists. I think some very advanced hospital systems will see this as well. We've got a couple of hospital clients already and we're talking to more, but the physicians will lead the change and they already are. I don't think it's a, it's a um, if, it's a when at this point. Well, Mike, I couldn't agree more with this opportunity uh, that we have in value-based care enablement. And it really seems like the new players, innovators and disruptors like yourself, are going to be in the best position to be at the leading edge in this new model of value-based care. And also these primary care physicians, as you mentioned, I mean, they're more nimble and agile and unconflicted. And, you know, there's so many upstart companies right now and that are providing enablement and transformation and care delivery. I mean, if you look at provider organizations, for example, you know, like ChinMed and Oak Street, I mean, there are organizations that aren't worried about leakage and demand destruction like incumbent organizations. You know, if you look at on the MSO side, you know, you have Alidate and Privia and Agilon Health and others that are showing that VBC successes can be forged through partnership with independent provider groups, you have newer entrants like Vitalize and Upstream and Wellvana that are uh, showing the vertical of companies that shows the vertical of companies that are really focused on enabling providers and value-based models. I mean, it gives us uh, some optimism that there is a lot of acceleration on the enablement side. And, you know, there's countless examples of these startups that are oriented towards supporting primary care and value-based constructs and developing these novel approaches to treating patient-specific cohorts on distinct uh, capabilities. And Pearl Health is becoming widely known as a new company uh, that's empowering these independent primary care providers to participate in value-based care through this technology enablement that you're talking about. And you're also looking at ways to share risk with them. And it's great to kind of see, you know, the work that you've been doing, you know, with, with the company over the years. And so I wanted to ask you as an entrepreneur, if you could explain the advantage that upstart innovators and new companies have in changing healthcare at scale. I mean, what advice would you give to others who are just starting innovating in the value-based care space? Well, and I, I, um, let me just make a, a quick comment. I want to answer that directly as well. One thing I'd like to do in terms of all the competitive set, you know, I think, and this will, this will kind of answer your question if, you, if, if I can kind of just share with your audience, think about the insurance company for a second in this category and think of them at scale. They charge us about 12% to manage the premium dollar, and then they need to make about 3% in profit. So 15 cents of every dollar 
uh, needs to go to the insurance model. The risk shift that we're talking about where providers start to manage it, I would argue takes that 15% down to might be four, 5%, might be less. You know, right now, Pearl is running at 4% admin costs relative to the premium dollars that we're managing. And I think in 24, that'll become 2%. And that's a metric that I ask our team to report on to me monthly, because I think it's uh, a good sign to show that all of these upstarts or startups in, in this category can create real economic value. You're thinking of it almost like what we did with AWS and the server, the server kind of wars, where to start a business, you needed to go and build an entire server farm. And then as you got more customers, you had to add more servers and you had more buildings, more air conditioning, more security. And now you just subscribe to somebody who can flip them in and out at fractions of the cost. I'd argue the enabling category could serve like that for all of healthcare, sucking out administrative costs into your earlier comment, administrative time. And so to be a startup in that space, and to answer your question directly, I'm not sure that I do it for being a startup. In certain ways, I don't want to be a startup because it actually makes it a little bit harder to be that utility and that commodity solution for people who want to get into the risk business. But what I would say to someone who's looking to get into healthcare more broadly and entrepreneurially, I, I would say you really want to focus on generating value and a thesis of change. I think being a startup, especially now, is hard. It's hard to get clients. It's hard to raise capital. Um, you know, that'll change. Sometimes that's the best time to start a company, but I would really encourage folks to start with a strong thesis and vision in mind and really try to test that thesis 10 years out. Is this going to be a category, a secular trend that in the future will be only bigger? You want to kind of see a growing market. I think, you know, the enablement and the value category is a good example of that right now. And there'll be others, um, drug delivery and, and development, AI and automation, um, data interoperability. I mean, there's a ton of these categories, but I would really focus on that thesis. And then I think for us, what gave us kind of uh, an escape velocity in a very competitive space is um, two things, really, TAM and team. Uh, you want to make sure the total addressable market is a big one, that at least from an investment perspective, raising capital and resources uh, draws opportunity from the capital markets. And team, I think, is something that, um, you know, Everybody, maybe except Warren Buffett, bets on from an investment standpoint in terms of the ability to overcome challenging factors in a, in a category. And so if you get both of those together and you have that thesis view, you know, I have no regrets and I would encourage anybody at that moment to go for it. Um, but I think you want to make sure you've got enough of a, a belief on those key variables and not be kind of doing it to kind of just be your own boss or, or be entrepreneur. Because I, I think this category is sufficiently hard that it will figure out who has those kind of key ingredients and who doesn't over a, a fairly short period of time. Well, Mike, I wanted to engage you now on this new ACO reach model. I mean, this appears to be a game changer for value-based care. I mean, it provides an opportunity for PCPs to increase and stabilize revenue with prospective payment and with partial and fully capitated options, unlike these MSSP ACOs. REACH ACOs are going to be responsible for most claims payments as well as medical management. I mean, this new program is what I see is being really key to moving fee-for-service Medicare beneficiaries into coordinate, coordinated care arrangements and primary care physicians participating in the REACH program are going to be in the driver's seat for the future of value transformation in our country. And, you know, Pearl Health is really seizing this opportunity by partnering with 
PCPs and reach ACOs and helping these practices maximize revenue while also providing your standard platform of software and services. And Pearl is helping PCPs enter into these risk-based arrangements by taking on asymmetric risk on their behalf and in some cases supporting no downside risk arrangements while going in as 50-50 partners for those practices ready and willing to take on risk. And you do this in, in exchange for of portions of the shared savings that you believe PCPs will generate by leveraging your software and services to help them beat the benchmark. So Mike, could you uh, elaborate on what specific strategies and support uh, Pearl Health offers to primary care physicians participating in REACH ACOs to help them maximize revenue? And, and also in looking ahead, what do you envision as the long-term impact of the ACO REACH model on the healthcare landscape in our country? And, and how does Pearl plan to evolve with this changing landscape? I mean, ultimately, we focus on a couple of key variables in supporting primary care and frankly, any provider who wants to move into risk-based models. And they all have, I think, the same theme around reducing the cost of access and improving the intelligence and capabilities of participating in the model or the game, if you will. And so we aim to be the best in those categories, make it cheap to access and give you the best tools to win. And so I'll walk through kind of a couple of highlights of what that means, but that's really how we think about enablement. And when you think about it at a more aggregate level, if somebody has true innovation in a category, you want to make it so that they can participate in the game. You don't want to have to have them go through lots of policy and regulatory hoops, lots of commercial and negotiation challenges. And what I like most about REACH is that it's starting to enable really anybody to participate in value-based models and compare that to, and MSSP, by the way, has similar elements that it's not just REACH, but compare that to kind of more the insurance model where you have to kind of go negotiate a contract, get access to this flow, get access to data, it winds up being a cheaper, faster path to this alignment shift that we've been talking about. And so we focus on how do we make it super easy to get in this game? And then how do we enable our physicians to win? And a couple examples uh, I mentioned earlier about the super easy part, really it's just a DocuSign. You know, there's an education piece to it for sure, but the actual mechanical requirement is to sign a piece of paper saying you're interested in getting these feeds of data, getting these payments. So we've made it very easy to join these models. And then the how do we get them to win? A lot of it is around condensing tremendous amounts of information. Healthcare, I don't think, really has a data problem as it's described today. People could convince you that there's billions and trillions of data points that they could deliver to you and your patients. The real test now is what is the data that matters and what it, when does it matter? So how do you synthesize and distill critical information at the point of care in a salient way that is actionable? That's actually what I think our system suffers for, from the most now. It's no longer huge database access. It's tell me what's relevant and what's the accurate thing to deliver to this patient and help me do that. So we focus a lot on that. And that's through all of this ingestion of data, our uh, urgency score, promoting patients that are most at risk, and then our suggestion engine making an, uh, basically a request to our partners, our provider partners, to make an action. And what we've done over the last couple of years, we've realized that they can't do all the actions easily that we might ask. So we've started to bring in partners and build technology capabilities across Rx, specialty care, emergency care, AWVs, you name it. We're starting to build up the kind of full stack solution so that a provider can say, this part I'm really good at, this part can you help me with? 
and we, we've got a couple more years to go on that journey, but we are building that full stack suite that will become increasingly automatic so that when an action is suggested, suggested, it is basically defaulted to occurring as opposed to being a huge clinical or administrative burden on the practice. And so that's kind of at a product and experience level, what we're focused on and compounding on with our R&D, uh, our research and development team. Well, Mike, we talked earlier about this paradigm of fee-for-service and how that currently dominates our industry. And we also talked about how these independent primary care physicians are extremely cash-strapped and overworked. They're struggling to remain financially solvent. They're on this hamster wheel. They're compelled to run faster and faster and crank out more transactional E&M encounters just to generate enough revenue to stay in business. And we talked earlier about the administrative hassles and all of that, that, you know, the, the PCP landscape is dealing with. And, you know, we've seen a trend where a lot of these primary care physicians are, you know, jumping ship and selling their practices to larger enterprises like hospitals and PE back physician aggregators. And at a national level, you know, we've seen, uh, a mass consolidation of providers. And, you know, right now, I believe it's only around 32% of PCPs that are working in a private practice outside of a corporatized uh, care delivery business model. And, you know, I'm interested in this concept of primary care consolidation versus independence and, you know, and what that means for our future and value. And, you know, since your company works primarily with independent practices that participate in value-based care models, are you at all concerned about the continued consolidation and, and corporatization of primary care? Well, we've increasingly started to work with, you know, maybe maybe it's considered the most corporatization entities, but um, larger groups of practices. I, I would say there are two things. One, the benefit of working in larger teams and at scale is typically associated with more capabilities, uh, risk protection, and the ability to kind of get to better terms across payer contracts and other reimbursement models. So I'm not sure the dream of the local independent doc operating all on their own is the goal set that we are focused on. I think it's more on the autonomy and the independence of an individual physician to practice care as they think it makes sense and can contribute to population health. And so to that extent, I'm a little worried about consolidation if folks are basically trading in what they believe is the right thing to do or the only way to economically survive. I think that's a, a mixed bag. In some cases, I think folks are doing that and then looking to leave those constructs in a few years. I think technology like Pearls will be there for them where you could just kind of open up a practice. And imagine one day opening up a practice where it's not about negotiating leases and buying computers and uh, building kind of file cabinets. But frankly, it's just turning on an application that has patients ready to be managed. I think we're moving to that world faster than people may appreciate. And I think that will create more flexibility and autonomy for groups that feel like they have to sell themselves. And then there are a set of folks where it's actually just the right thing to do if you really want to deliver excellent care, uh, affiliating, as we talked about a little earlier, with specialty uh, providers, with, with a hospital. And frankly, a hospital is a key ingredient in value-based care when properly applied, because it still is one of the best places to get very acute care delivered quickly and efficiently. And especially those hospitals that will start moving into value-based models will see it. So I, I think it's, it's mixed. It depends a lot on the reasons and the motivations. I have seen the consolidation. It's something that in certain ways makes sense to me because you know, if you go and negotiate a payer contract, for example, you're gonna just get different terms as a group of 500 physicians versus five. 
And so it makes sense that people are affiliating, grouping up and partnering. I'm not sure that's the boogeyman of healthcare. Um, what I would say though is where we're seeing folks transition from what they believe is the right thing to do for their community to what they need to do to economically survive, and, and those are at odds, that's where I think we'll have a problem. And more importantly, a big opportunity to provide an operating model and a business um, solution that enables providers to deliver the care they believe in and not have to trade off on the economics uh, that they deserve. And, and you know, you look at a lot of industries, that's increasingly becoming the new standard and demand that people wanna work in a business model that is aligned morally, ethically, um, academically with what they wanna contribute to their world. And business solutions are catching up to providing that. And I think enablement category is gonna be one of those, where as more patients are moved into these kind of total accountability care models, we're gonna need more providers, frankly, who are willing to operate that way. And we'll be able to create jobs or frankly, independent environments where you don't need to put all the capital in and all the staffing requirements to open up a practice. I think the practice of uh, the new practice in the future will actually be less capital intensive with these models becoming more proliferated. Well, Mike, I really appreciate you saying that. I mean, it's convenient for us to 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 demagogue, you know, consolidation and you know, look at it as the boogeyman, but it really comes down to the right mix of uh scale and efficiency coupled with uh, a moral and ethical compass to really drive and transform care delivery. And, you know, I I wanted to kind of land on that point, you know, in terms of the the culture that's gonna be needed, you know, to lead our country to true healthcare transformation. I mean, to make this shift towards value, we need values, you know, since healthcare is a human endeavor and transforming it is such a moral imperative. I mean, just as much as it is an economic one. And at Pearl Health, I know the company is, is, has been very much on the forefront and stating its position on establishing a culture within your organization that, and, and how that defines the, the success or failure of Pearl in the long term. And, you know, I, I saw you were, you were even quoted as saying, you know, culture is what everyone says it is at that moment in time. It's an evolving organism. And I wanted to see if you could expound on your thoughts on the importance of culture, especially in this new era of value-based care transformation. And in that Pearl, how do values define and empower your teams and and how does it enable you to make to resolve those hard you know decisions and sculpting new solutions for value-based care i believe deeply in culture and values and i've had a great privilege to work with a lot of organizations that have helped not only evolve my thinking on it but continue to remind and reflect that you know organizations without a strong value compass compass can get lost and so uh at pearl in particular we focus a lot on it i've always you know, like the phrase that culture eats strategy for breakfast and a team of committed people who share similar values can really do great things. We spend time talking about it and defining it. More importantly, though, for our country and for our value-based care system, but I would argue more for just our healthcare system to be productive, you know, three values for me really stand out and we try to reflect them at Pearl as well because of that consistency requirement. You know, transparency and interoperability, I think are gonna be critical, meaning we've gotta be able to share data and have the right data for people who are going to contribute to the health of patients. And to me, it's a no-brainer. We're all kind of collectively paying for it, whether it's in public and government models or even in commercial models. You know, we all pitch in to consume healthcare together. There are some personal pay elements and accountability to be sure, but a system that is 
so communal needs to have data flow very freely. And I, and I think increasingly policy sees that, but leaning into that very hard and making sure that all of that data is relevant and available to the treating provider is going to be a must. I think the second is that we're going to, we got to recognize the age old principle that you get what you pay for. And right now a fee for service system, especially because of how we've set up our coding regime. And we're speaking with um, Elliot Fisher up at the Dartmouth Institute and a few folks about even thinking about changing some of the rails of this program. But it doesn't surprise me that we have very diseased senior populations and increasingly non-senior populations very diseased because that's the revenue model. I mean, would it, would it surprise you if you told someone from another country that when you pay five times for a patient who has a burden and a high burden of uh, disease, that you see a lot more disease in that population. It's it's somewhat an economic law. And it strikes me as surprising that no one's really thought to pay the opposite. Why not reimburse and reward for more health? And so we're working on ways to what we're calling modifiable uh, health risk, but start injecting different incentives that reward um, healthcare providers and systems and companies to be compensated for delivering healthy people, not for finding and discovering sick people and perpetuating that. And I think we need to seriously reflect on our revenue model in a coding world because it really does perpetuate more of it. And the third is around technology, automation, artificial intelligence, et cetera. There can be a, a fear that these, uh, these models adopted too quickly can uh, get ahead of where humans are. But I would, I would ask us to be much more open, especially in healthcare, because the ability for technology to remove the administrative burdens and and kind of muck we put ourselves in to free humans from doing highly repetitive, low value add, often error prone work are real. And frankly, there's just a lot of regulatory and policy frameworks that if we brought the right set of leaders to look over, we could free up a tremendous amount of resources and move a lot faster, a lot more productively in that direction. And, and I'm very optimistic about that. I think that's what our culture generally looks for. Um, but I would say those three are the key values that will really enable us to get more from our healthcare system. And I think we're poised to get it if we have the will to to do so. Well, Mike, I appreciate your your comments on values and culture. And, you know, we began our conversation today, you know, with this vision that you have with Pearl to democratize access to value in healthcare and in terms of how you're creating primary care enablement at scale. And, you know, we, we talked uh, about ACO Reach earlier and, you know, ACO Reach certainly is an inflection point in terms of its design and economics, but it's also differentiated with these other payment models. I mean, the acronym itself, you know, REACH uh, stands for Realizing Equity, Access, and Community Health. And in terms of how we think about culture and values, I mean, this value in healthcare transformation that's being placed on equity is so important. And, you know, as we finish up our conversation today, I just wanted to ask you, you know, about, you know, how do we ensure that the ongoing efforts to democratize access to value in healthcare are both inclusive and effective and addresses the, the diverse needs and challenges of individuals across different communities and socioeconomic backgrounds? Well, so what I like most about REACH is it, it, it finally put a name on something that I think a lot of people were thinking about for quite some time. And it's the recognition that healthcare means different things to different people. And if it's not easy and cheap to access, it's not healthcare. And so one of the things that we focus on and this model focuses on, it has you know, requirements around data that you're able to access as well as your plan to facilitate and support 
um, access and, and equity across this, the spectrum is really the recognition that you need to start from where the patient is, not where the business model began. And so bringing online, and it really, it's so simple that it's surprising it's considered novel, but bringing online information about people's socioeconomic status, their location, their unique factors that might prevent them from either getting transport or being able to connect with uh, healthcare systems outside the home, how to incorporate you know, one thing that I'm not sure we've gone far enough in is how to incorporate our communities, our families, our friends into supporting patients who are struggling with different disease burdens and really making that information more available to support groups and stakeholders that a patient would identify as those who are helping them through anything else in life um, that they would normally uh, bring to their friends and community. I think these kinds of new ways to think about delivering healthcare are going to only lead to a better outcome and system. And this kind of new model, I think is just a sign of what's to come, that as you kind of bring this more multidisciplinary, team-based, data-based approach to what does it really take to get cost-effective healthcare to somebody in need? And what are the environmental factors, personal factors, background factors that might prohibit or make that harder uh, and enable providers to work around them or work through them? I think that's a very exciting moment for healthcare. I think technology is going to play a huge role in that. Providers will as well. And capital markets are, as often they are, the great unlock that'll help us transform what the model is today, which has a lot of biases. It has biases around location. You've got to get to a certain place to get great care. It has a lot of biases around coverage. You've got to have a certain plan to access a certain set. It has a lot of biases around proactivity, which I think is a mistake. If we look at most healthcare dollars, you know, probably 60, 70%, maybe 80% of all healthcare dollars are collectively spent, right? We're not spending right now, it's about 12% out of pocket. We don't spend most of our dollars as individuals to then think that we then make those individuals who generate the costs have all the agency, to me is a backwards model. You've got to have a very proactive, uh, sentient system that will reach out and respond to people who are driving costs in a team-based way. And so I think these models are a sign of what's to come and I'm very excited about what we'll be able to deliver toward the back half of this decade in recognition of them. Well, Mike, I am excited about this future, you know, that that you describe. I mean, this conversation has been so enjoyable for me. I've learned so much. And it's really been somewhat of a sanity check for me as well in terms of, you know, betting on the future of value-based care. I mean, we certainly have some daunting challenges, you know, the results of the MSSP, as we talked about, it's been a little bit of a mixed bag, but we're clearly on a, on a trajectory, you know, towards uh, reimagining uh, the future of healthcare in our country. And Pearl Health is front and center and in, in providing the level of enablement that's really going to lead the value-based care charge. I, I uh, can't thank you enough for joining us on the show this week. And, you know, just for our listeners out there that, you know, want to learn more about the company and the Pearl Health platform, how can they best engage and learn about your work and find out more about your, your capabilities? Well, you can visit our website at pearlhealth.com. You can also just email me directly on topco at pearlhealth.com. We are happy to engage. What I would say what's exciting, you know, the savings may not always be there. They are getting there, but think about how much our lexicon and our dialogue has changed. And the way you kind of change any complex big system, you go from thinking about it to talking about it to doing it to seeing results. And I'm confident we're on that march and glad to be a part of this. And it was really wonderful to join you today, Eric. And congrats on what you've built. It's a really impressive dialogue and always 
happy to have the conversation with you. Well, thank you, my friend. It is much appreciated and congratulations to you as well and uh, supporting industry and value transformation and the great work that you're doing at Pearl Health. It's been a great privilege to be with you today on the Race to Value. Likewise. 